You're going to love this. Just love it. The president makes decisions. He's the decider. The press secretary announces those decisions, and you people of the press type those decisions down. Make, announce, type. Just put them through a spell check and go home. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. In Oregon, on 91.7 FM KYAQ Central Coast. 106.7 FM Queso Cottage Grove. In Pennsylvania, on 93 FM WLRI Lancaster. In Hawaii, on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Ohio, on WGRN 94.1 FM Columbus. In Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Bellingham, Washington, on KZAX 94.9 FM. In Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, blanketing the globe five days a week. Brad and Desi have the week off. I'm Angie Cuero of In Deep with Angie Cuero, heard on some of these same stations. Following up today on the phenomenon of fake news and erroneous news, not the same thing, although they are getting conflated now. So let's toss those in three different broad categories, roughly defined by intent. Fake news is designed to fool you. That's the whole point. It's either to make money by going viral and getting clicks or to manipulate public opinion or both, but it's on purpose. That's that's the gist of it. Now, news with mistakes in it, those are well-intended, but they're badly reported. And the intent there is to get the word out first. And sometimes that means skipping basic fact-checking. That is a required journalistic standard. Not a good thing, but not morally repugnant. And then there's the third manifestation, which is taking the source at their word and even if that source is the president, that gets iffy. Or even if you're hearing the same story from multiple venues, ignoring the fact that each of those stories is citing, well, each other or the same one or all one original source. And that first source credits an anonymous voice. Now, Matt Taibbi in Rolling Stone called that out today with regard to President Barack Obama's Russian sanctions. Check this out. He recaps Obama's statements made yesterday. Then he notes Russia's response today, and then he pulls back the curtain on where this leaves reporters. He says, this dramatic story puts the news media in a jackpot. Absent independent verification, reporters will have to rely upon the secret assessment of intelligence agencies to cover the story at all. Most reporters I know, he says, are quietly freaking out about having to go through that again. We all remember the WMD fiasco. You can see awkwardness reflected in the headlines that flew around the internet Thursday. Some news agencies seemed split on whether to unequivocally de declare that Russian hacking took place. 
or whether to hedge bets and put it all on the government to make that declaration using Obama says formulations. Now, Taibbi points out a New York Times story, which in turn cites a report from the FBI and Homeland Security joint report. Now, here's what he notes that a lot of reporters skip, quote, we don't learn much at all about what led our government to determine, A, that these hacks were directed by the Russian government, or B, they were undertaken with the aim of influencing the election, and in particular, to help elect Donald Trump. The problem with this story is that, like the Iraq WMD mess, it takes place in the middle of a highly politicized environment during which the motives of all the relevant actors are suspect. Nothing quite adds up. Now, you note, in the midst of this story, he's already going to places where, in an ideal world, every story that carries this information from President Obama or from the Russians or from an anonymous source would all note this would all say, hey, we're listening to this guy's voice and this is what the guy says. And we have no way of knowing whether he is manipulating the news about news to manipulate the news, if you follow me. Taibbi notes that if the American security agencies had smoking gun evidence that the Russians had an organized campaign to derail the U.S. presidential election and deliver the White House to Trump, then expelling a few dozen diplomats after the election seems like an oddly weak and ill-timed response. Also, he says, like the WMD story, there's an element of salesmanship the government is using to push the hacking narrative that should make reporters nervous. Adding to the problem is that last month of the campaign, in the time since the election, we have seen an epidemic of factually loose, clearly politically motivated reporting about Russia. Democrat-leaning pundits have been unnervingly quick to use phrases like, Russia hacked the election. Now, yesterday, if you want to look up yesterday's broadcast, I was talking to R.J. Eskow about exactly this. And when he talks about the Russian hacks, he deliberately says alleged Russian hacks. And that sounds overly cautious, overly prudent if there is such a thing until you, again, look at the sources. This source points back to that, that source, which is cited in 14 different other places. And inevitably, when you boil it down, it's reports of. Whether you know or not it's a lie, when something is repeated over and over and over again, it becomes accepted truth. It becomes conventional wisdom. And we've watched that happen with the Russia hacking the vote story. It's not to say it didn't happen. It's not to say that wasn't their intent. It's not to say that it didn't succeed. It's not to say there's no point to this. The fact is we don't know. And each and every time a media outlet reports on this, in an ideal world, they'd go into the details about how we never know. They can't always do that, but they could do better than they're doing. Taibbi notes widespread confusion among news audiences over the Rus whether the Russians hacked the DNC emails, a story, he says, that has at least been backed by some evidence, even if it hasn't always been great evidence, or whether Russians hacked vote tallies in critical states, a far more outlandish tale backed by no credible evidence. An economist YouGov poll conducted this month shows that 50 percent of all Clinton voters believe Russians hacked the vote tallies. That's very different than hacking a bunch of emails in order to influence the election. But 50 percent of Clinton voters, as reported by The Intercept and other outlets, 50 percent 
thinks that they were messing with actual numbers. And he compares this to the 62% of Trump voters who think the preposterous, unsourced Trump Alex Jones contention that millions of undocumented immigrants voted in the election. Let's move on down to his conclusion, because this is important. We ought to have learned from the Judith Miller episode. Not only do governments lie, they won't hesitate to burn news agencies. In a desperate moment, they'll use any sucker they can find to get a point across. I have no problem, Tayyibi says, believing that Vladimir Putin tried to influence the American election. He's gangster spook scum of the lowest order and capable of anything. Donald Trump, too, was swine enough during the campaign to publicly hope the Russians would disclose Clinton's emails. So a lot of this is very believable. But, he concludes, we have been burned before in stories like this to disastrous effects, which makes it surprising we are not trying harder to avoid getting fooled again. Oh, hey, Fox tried to fool you again. Oh, wait, I will report. You can decide if it is fake news. Fox pulled a number out of there wherever to report breathlessly that 2016 saw $70 million in food stamp fraud. That would be terrible if it were true. Fox made it sound legit. They cited the Department of Agriculture data that does not exist. The on-air apology, quote, nationally food stamp trafficking is on the decline. So sorry about that mistake. So sorry. I guess it could be worse. They could have been more honest and said, sorry, not sorry. Speaking of probing for actual facts, kudos to publishing industry insider Kathleen Schmidt. I found this on Twitter. She was responding to Milo Yiannopoulos' claim that he received $250,000 as a book advance. Now, a lot of tweets, but the takeaway addressed not only his claim, but the appropriateness of the Simon & Schuster boycott some people are calling for. Because the story is that a Simon & Schuster imprint called Threshold has given him the advance for this book. Already, the Chicago Review of Books has declared it will not review any Simon & Schuster books in 2017 because of the imprint's decision to publish the neo-Nazi book. Kathleen Schmidt's relevant points, and I'll start with the most salient here, this announcement came from the neo-Nazi himself. This is a guy not known for verbal reserve and fidelity to facts. This is not, she pointed out, an official announcement from a publisher. And she notes the distinction between the publishing house and its imprints. The threshold imprint publishes a lot of ultra-conservative books. How much, if any, info on this alleged book advance may have made it up the ladder, may have not made it up the ladder to the bigwigs, we have no idea. Especially, she notes, because... Its advances, this is inside stuff, I didn't know this, its advances over $250,000 that the bigger bosses have to sign off on. So how convenient that the neo-Nazis advance is reported to be just below that bar. And finally, she called out others who are already pledging to boycott Simon & Schuster, along with pointing out that we don't have the facts yet. We only have the neo-Nazis' word that he isn't getting published, and that he's got this advance in hand. She points out Simon & Schuster isn't even open this week. And when they do come back, they're going to have to make, as any industry would at a time like this, as any company would at a time like this, they're going to have to make a considered response when they're back from the holiday. And on this last point, Rabia Chaudhry joined in too. 
authors have it hard enough. If we, you, I, anyone were to dive right in and organize a Simon & Schuster boycott, that would ultimately punish innocent writers who already have trouble earning a living. That seems rational to me. If you want to boycott Simon & Schuster, you can start Tuesday. You can start Wednesday, rather than starting with not enough facts on hand. Okay, we are going to move on to other things. Up next, what it would really mean for a state to secede from the U.S. Three different groups declared in California, and two of them are still active. That is their response to the election. And after that, we'll hear from Jeff Chang, author of Who We Be and We Gonna Be All Right. I'm Angie Cuero. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Given the outcome of the 2016 election, we really need your support now more than ever. This is no longer a drill. It never was. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. I'm gonna learn to read and write. I'm gonna see what there is to see. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Cuero, staying with you through the countdown to hell with the ascent of the toddler-in-chief to the White House. Remember the folks that said they would leave the U.S. if Trump won? Did any of them actually leave? Not that I heard of, anyway. And I I get that. I don't want to be an American under Trump. Oh, God, I never want that image in my head either, under Trump. But anyway... I get the sentiment, and maybe you had the same wish. I can see wanting to be out of the country and ultimately deciding to stay. I wish I were out of the country, but while I can do what I do from here, my guy has to be in the U.S. Everybody's got their own personal story about why they're here. So here's a thought. What if you could leave the U.S. from the comfort of your very own home? There is a famous picture of a Tea Party rally with marchers, and they all had big cards, and they were trying to spell secede and... It didn't work, but the shoe is now on the other foot. Three distinct groups in California have spoken up of seceding here, and they're a long way from the Tea Party. Instead, it's more for them about acknowledging officially what is already true, that populous coastal areas apparently see the country one way, less populated interior areas apparently see it very differently. So what if we just called it a day with each other? What if California or the Northwest or any state is fed up enough to leave? And could they even do that? Let us talk now to Natalie Blake. She is with the California National Party. She's co-chair of the L.A. chapter and co-chair of the convention committee as well. Natalie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, We were chit-chatting a little before we started recording, and you said it's, it's less a matter in your eyes or with the California National Party's eyes of seceding than it is an independence movement. What distinction are you making there? Well, I think a lot of people have some negative affiliations with secession, like you're giving up on something or you're throwing something away. We like to think about the independence movement as a positive sign, as something where we can put all the good things about California in the forefront and move towards a better California for everyone. If California were to secede, Does it do that unilaterally? I was actually looking into the definition of secession, and and one of the points is that it's in dispute whether a state could unilaterally say, we're out of here, and whether the feds have anything to say about that. 
I agree with you that that is in dispute, but all roads to uh, independence don't lead to Congress necessarily in the United States or the Supreme Court for that matter. Um, there are ways to amend the Constitution. Uh, a lot of people have been talking about it when they talk about amending the Electoral College in light of the last uh, two of the last elections in the last 16 years, where we had a president taking office who was not elected by the population, but by the Electoral College. Mm -hmm. And it takes two thirds of the Senate, two thirds of the uh, Congress and 38 of the 50 states. Well, that's pretty much the deal for any constitutional amendment. Same thing to get a state out. So that's a path. Um, and people look at me and say, well, you really think that anybody would let California leave? And when you think about it, well, they're not, they're probably less likely in the red states to want to change the electoral college. So if your choices are change the electoral college and give California its full throated voice to have its values lead the land, they're probably more likely to let us go. So mm -hmm. that's one path. Another path is that, um, the United States is party to the, um, United Nations Treaty. And the United Nations Charter grants everyone in its Universal Declaration of Human Rights the right um, to nationality so that we can choose our own nationality, that no one shall be arbitrarily deprived of his nationality or denied the right to change his nationality. Oh, I did not he know that. Signatory to that treaty. So if we can get a majority of Californians to vote for independence, we can apply to the UN for uh, independent nation status. So all roads don't lead, lead to Congress <laughs> to get independence. You know what? I want to clarify something. While I'm talking to you, a lot of people are thinking to themselves, hey, aren't these the people who are affiliated with Russia? And this is a plot by Putin to, you know, to disarm the United States by breaking it into tiny arguing colonies. Yes, California is a separate group from the California National Party. And they're the ones with the Russian affiliation. And I've seen that confused a lot. Have you any thoughts you'd like to share about why they're getting the bulk of the coverage and the California National Party, which is a legit California party, is having so much trouble getting traction in the public mind? Well, I wish I could answer that question, uh, but probably because it sounds kind of salacious and dicey to have a party that, uh, that or a movement that people aren't as comfortable with as we would like. Uh, to be affiliated with something they don't like already. Mm -hmm. So we're aware of what they're doing, but they don't speak for us. And you're right. We don't speak for them. And I can't explain it other than I think it sounds uh, splashy to say that, you know, maybe fringy people are associated with Russia. So, you know, look away. Don't don't pay any attention to what they're doing. Uh, and that's uh, uh, something that we hope to change by having more conversations with people like you who are willing to have a rational, reasonable conversation about what we're trying to do. The California National Party is a bunch of very earnest, very thoughtful people with a lot of positive energy to add to the conversation. I guess well, that's not as splashy across a headline as uh, being affiliated with uh, someone who doesn't support those values. Yeah, it's, it's another version of if it bleeds, it leads. <laughs> don't, don't commit the sin of being boring. Well, let's talk a little bit about that argument, though, that if you were to fracture the United States in any way. When I say you, I mean a secession movement or anyone who infiltrates the U.S. to fracture it. If the U.S. ends up fractured in any way through anybody's moves, doesn't that work to the benefit of our enemies? Well, not if we remain strong allies. And the goals of the California National Party are to create an independent California that's a strong ally of the United States. We're not leaving to be enemies with anybody. We're leaving to be uh, a stronger uh, nation on our own 
and a strong ally, just like, you know, Canada's a strong ally of the United States. We'd be another North American ally to the United States, which would make us all stronger. Let's talk about what this means financially for both the states and for our state and for the United States. An independent California would be, depending on who you talk to, the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world. That may or may not remain true when the nature of our exchanges with other states would change. So what would that look like? Well, you're absolutely right. Depending on who you listen to and whose analyses and whose numbers you crunch, we are the fifth or sixth largest economy on the planet, not just the largest, the, you know, fifth or sixth largest economy in the United States. That's the entire planet. We're ahead of France, virtually tied with Great Britain. Um, that will change probably, but we think for the better. Right now we're paying you know, billions of dollars, something like $59 billion uh, just for military budget from the state of California every year to the federal government. And we only get back in spending somewhere in the 70s. Again, that depends on whose numbers you crunch and whose analyses you're relying on. But they're pretty consistently under 80 cents for every dollar that we give to the federal government. So that money's going to go back into the California coffers to help build a better California. Mm-hmm. We're also not looking to spend money on a military and, you know, be... Uh, taking care of everybody else around the world. We're going to be looking to have a military that just protects California. So it would reduce that part of the budget significantly. How do you, so, how do you project the costs of something like the military to know if the cost is practical? Well, that would be someone for that would be a question specifically for some of the economists that we're working for, working mm-hmm. with, I'm sorry. Uh, so I don't have an exact uh, calculation for you, mm-hmm. but we do know that our policies will be focused on protecting California alone and not really being gatekeepers or uh, enforcing our opinions uh, or values across the, the world, like the United States tends to get involved outside of the United States. That's not something we're looking to do. So just by nature of the values that we want to put out there, we want to enforce, we'll be uh, limited, more limited in how our expenditures are made. Brad's show is heard around the world, and I, I want to keep this, for the most part, uh, relative to everyone who's listening, if their state chooses to go for independence, that kind of thing. But with just a moment on California-specific issues, there's a big difference between Northern and Southern California. There are arguments over water, primarily. Northern California has the water. A lot of it goes to the south. A lot of it goes out to the valleys, which are naturally dry, but they're building water, or they're, they're growing water-rich and water-thirsty plants. That's just one thing that different regions of California might find to argue about if they were to become independent. So how does a group like the California National Party get everybody on the same page, even acknowledging that North and South or East and West may not agree with each other? That's a really good point. But I don't think anybody, any other party is bringing those disparate factions together, when in fact, Part of a major part of the platform of the California National Party is to address the concerns of infrastructure and water security for the state of California. We invite all voices. We invite all those opinions, folks who aren't living on the coast and folks who aren't living in the valleys and folks who are living in north and folks are living in the south to come together and address these issues that are going to be issues for all of California whether the California National Party is the answer or not. We need to address uh, water security in in the state of California. Mm -hmm. We've been in five years of drought, as everyone in California knows. You know, it's raining today in Los Angeles, where I am, so we're grateful for that. Um, But we we haven't seen a whole lot of rain. 
in the last five years. And I don't think that's going to change significantly. And no, unlike not. our president-elect, uh, we see that this may be the writing on the wall for the future of the planet. So there's some change happening that we need to address going forward. California National Party wants to reach out to all voices to try to get a good plan for all Californians. Uh, let's talk about uh, President Trump. I mean, the California National Party is is already a party. It didn't just wake up and say, oh, my gosh, Trump is president. Now we have to organize. So what is it that provoked the thought of California independence before it turned out that Trump was going to win and really change the nature of the country? Well, I think Trump has helped to get to wake up a lot of people and get them interested in looking for something like California National Party. But you're right. The California National Party started before he was elected because of the disparate values that California holds from many people in the United States, especially in red states. And when we talk about California national California values, at least to the California National Party, what are we talking about? We're talking about seeking quality, universal health care for everybody in the state um, getting outstanding multilingual education for all students in California from K through college, making those in, in, investments in infrastructure and water security that you and I just talked about, securing a woman's right to choose and equal pay for equal work, which the incoming administration has already stated is uh, something they want to change and, and move backwards. Mm -hmm. um, we want humane, sensible immigration policy. Again, that's very different than the incoming administration, but different than the red states. And that's existed for a long time. We want defense of our environment. That's something we've been at odds with the red states about for a long time. We have a commitment to supporting our world leading agriculture here, manufacturing, technology, entertainment, other industries in California that are unique to California. Well, in fact, since, since you bring up tech, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but since you bring up tech, uh, there was an article written by Kara Swisher the other day about why the tech world is looking to work with Donald Trump. And everyone in the California tech world is at least, you know, they're, they're giving voice service to working toward diversity. And they do tend to be more supportive of, of equal rights uh, for women, et cetera, even if it doesn't manifest in their boardrooms yet. But... How do you make the case to tech groups that are very much enmeshed throughout the United States? If you have a, a tech group that's centered in California, you've got call centers out in the red states. You know, they're, they're a sprawling entity. Each tech group is a small, sprawling embassy. Hmm, can't talk today. It's <laughs> sprawling entity. And they're going to have a lot of fiscal interests in staying part of that network. Well, the California National Party is looking to keep California and all businesses in California part of the global economy. That would include being part of the economy of the the you know United States. We're not looking to cut ourselves off from anyone. We're not looking to make enemies in business or you know, any other way. So I think it could only benefit uh, a business, including tech ind industry, to have a strong economy in California where they do business that's friendly so that we have a, you know, that has a simplified and a fair tax code for them in the state of California that will be the Republic of uh, California. But we'll continue to have, uh, look, look towards a global, global economy and be part of the United States and the world. We want to make it easier for them to do business in California. Can you mention anyone who is either affiliated with or sympathetic with the goals of the California National Party that people who listen to our show might know? Are there any politicians who have stood up, any celebrities that said they're willing to listen, anybody with name recognition that people would say, OK, I, I can identify with that? Well, as of yet, I can't really name anybody. 
we've been talking to a few people. I, I can say that. Um, but that's what makes California National Party to me so exciting and so great is it is grassroots. It's the people of California for the people of California. At this point, all our momentum and all our support has come from regular old Californians who are working because they want a better future for all of California. Last question for you, Natalie, and that is uh, people who are listening to us in blue spots in red states. Uh, my heart goes out to them. That's, you know, I've, I've visited some of them and it's like, you know, a speck in the ocean. But if they suddenly see an independent California, what are going to be the rules about who can come in with us? Well, that, again, is something that's going to have to be worked out and negotiated. Uh, we're not looking to put a big wall up like some other people might be on our <laughs> Um, and, you know, we have a we've joked a bit about, you know, having a bumper sticker that says, welcome to California. One in 10 Americans are already here. Um, <laughs> we're going to keep working on those kind of details. We want people to feel free to come to California, but we also can't support everyone in the United States uh, either. We have to be careful about keeping our economy strong and making sure that we can provide for everybody who's in California. Uh, Natalie, I don't know how common I am. I'm one of those people who I, I want to keep my ears open. I can't say I'm pro-secession, pro-independence, anti, I don't know. But it's it's the fact that you take time for interviews like this that I think are keeping people informed. So I want to thank you for showing up with us today on Brad's show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited about the movement and so excited about finding a positive, thoughtful place to put all my disappointment about what's been happening lately. And I uh, appreciate for, appreciate you letting me get the word out. Absolutely. Natalie Blake is with the California National Party. She's co-chair of the L.A. chapter and co-chair of the convention committee. Coming up on the broadcast, journalist and cultural critic Jeff Chang. He's talking about the good and the bad of, quote unquote, diversity in a live interview. I'm Angie Quero. Be right back. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Good morning. Good morning. We've talked the whole night through. Good morning. Good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to stay up late. Good morning. Good morning. I'm Angie Cairo. Brad and Desi are taking some time off. I will be with you through Monday. Jeff Chang. You may be familiar with him through various books that he's put out. We Gonna Be All Right is his latest. It's got, among other things in there, it's got a collection, a timeline of the facts for Ferguson, for the events in Ferguson, and a look at what we mean when we say diversity and how lip service to diversity might be making us feel good but isn't actually getting things done. Now, he joined me before a live audience for my own radio show, In Deep, and here is an excerpt from that interview. 
Now, there are a number of reasons you might have heard of Jeff Chang. His first book was a huge hit, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, A History of the Hip-Hop Generation. Then he came out with Who We Be, The Colorization of America. And his latest book, which we're about to talk about, is We Gonna Be All Right, Notes on Race and Resegregation. He serves as the executive director of the Institute for Diversity in the Arts at Stanford. This conversation with me was conducted live. It's part of my show, In Deep with Angie Quero. And here are some excerpts from that event. I wasn't sure whether to be surprised or not. 25% really believe in white privilege. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, it's kind of stunning, but I think it's sort of a natural culmination of the backlash to the civil rights movement. You know, if we kind of take the long view, we haven't had a consensus for racial justice in this country for the last 50 years. And what we've seen really over the last 50 years, the last half century, has been the sort of uh, regression, the sort of overturning of laws, of judicial decisions, of moves to uh, head towards racial justice and cultural equity. And I think a large part of that has been this notion that racism is really about how I talk to you and how you talk to me. And it's not about deeper questions of power and privilege and representation and access. And so, you know, we we had this, to use an NCAA basketball kind of term, we had this one shining moment, right, of this post-racial era that maybe lasted from uh, the election of Barack Obama to, you know, January 1st when Oscar Grant was killed. And it's the type of situation then when you, you get to the inauguration and the backlash against the symbol of Barack Obama, sort of the, the, the symbol of all things other, begins in earnest and, and leads us up to this crazy moment that we're in right now, historically, you know, with the rise of, of Donald Trump and Trumpism. You know, there was a theme that I kept coming back to in your book, and it came in your discussion of affirmative action, and again in your discussion of schools, and again in your discussion with an Asian American woman toward the end of the book. And what kept striking me is the number of people who are concerned that to raise up a people who have not been allowed to be equal is to sacrifice some kind of individual right, to to suffer an individual loss. Right. (laughs) Wow, you went right to the the, uh, toughest point in the book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, the the last book that that I put out, Who We Be, came out in 2014 in the fall about two months before the non-indictment of Darren Wilson in Ferguson, Officer Darren Wilson in Ferguson in the extrajudicial murder of Michael Brown. And so, you know, we had this period where I was coming on and I was doing, you know, sort of call-in radio shows and people were having these very confessional, naked kinds of discussions in public about race, very heart-rending types of things, you know. Um, white folks calling in, talking about, like, I remember when I did this to somebody, I feel really bad about it. Folks of color coming in and saying, I remember when this happened to me and this is what it felt like, you know. Um, these very deep kinds of conversations about race. And this is like, what, whatever, September, October of 2014. And then the non-indictment came down. And when I go on radio shows after that, it was all polarized, right? It was all kind of like, almost like talking points, like sort of anti-anti-racist talking points and anti-racist talking points. And, uh, and so the conversation polarized very quickly. And I think it's been in that particular situation since. But what I think the movement for Black Lives has done is it has caused all of us to be able to look at these central questions of what is really 
uh, democracy is supposed to be about. So focusing on questions of, of premature death, right? And also focusing on these questions of police brutality and death, but not that entirely, right? This is a movement about life. This, the key word here is lives uh, and, that the, and that black lives matter, mm-hmm. right? So how do we live, right? And how do we live together? So the book became this thing about how do we, all of us, deal and grapple with those types of questions that have been raised by the movement for black lives. And so I had to, in that sense, look at my own kind of positionality as somebody who grew up in Hawaii as an Asian American and a Pacific Islander, as a Chinese Hawaiian. And I have this moment where I'm arguing with another Chinese American over affirmative action. She says, what's wrong with fighting uh, against affirmative action, with fighting against discrimination against our people? And for me, that was like, wow, the language is completely reversed. And it was a moment that, on the one hand, made me think, it's true. I didn't grow up here on the continent where I, I, I moved to the continent, right? I migrated to the continent, so to speak, and then began to feel like a minority, mm-hmm. you know? You know, you talked about your own experience uh, coming to UC Berkeley, and you said every, you know, all kinds <laughs> of people, from hippies to frat boys and everything, just randomly threw racial insults at you. And then you talked later about Jonathan Butler, who, another college, you know, University of Missouri. Him, yeah. University of Missouri, mm-hmm. and he experienced the same thing. I thought to myself, you know, there are an awful lot of white people who would hear those stories and say, well, what did you do to provoke that? They, they couldn't believe that your reality mm. is to get yelled at for wearing your skin. Right. Yeah. Riding my bike down the, the block and coming around the corner and sort of, you know, biking around a hippie guy and the hippie telling me to go back to where I came from. And I'm like, I, I, I gave you a lot of room, dude. So I'm not even close <laughs> to you here. And man, like, where did that come from? So and then stuff that was escalating from that, you know, I mean, stuff that was physical. And I didn't experience it in the way that Jonathan Butler, who was the hunger striker at University of Missouri, who uh, launched the movement there, you know, concerned student 1950, or through his hunger strike sort of catalyzed, I should say, I want to be precise about this, the student movement that had already been going on called Concerned Student 1950, and then resulted in this wave of student protests that, that began last fall. Jonathan's experience was that as a student who had just come to the university, he was on election night, on Obama's election night, literally beaten up by a group of white kids who were angry that Obama won. This is the first semester that he's in school there. And so he's been there now for seven, eight years now. He's getting his master's degree. And for me, hearing his story was really sad because I, th- I thought to myself, what's really changed since the time I was in school in the mid-80s, um, in the early 90s, to now, mm-hmm. right? And seeing students who are putting out these lists of demands that were literally exactly the same type of thing that came out in the mid-80s and the early 90s. And the last thing to say about this is that all of the focus around student protests has been around uh, so-called safe spaces and trigger warnings, around language stuff, right? Overwhelmingly, students did not demand tightened speech codes. They did not demand more trigger warnings. They did not demand to, to limit free expression on campus, which is what the University of Chicago was writing about. They were demanding that there be more faculty of color, that there be mental health professionals, that there be the establishment of services and cultural centers where folks can be able to, to uh, talk to each other um, about different kinds of things and then talk to everybody uh, about you know, their cultures and their backgrounds and their histories. That's the kind of stuff that they were 
they're focusing on. So what I'm, what I'm getting at is, is the race conversation in some ways when students, when uh, organizers, when activists want to open it up, in some ways what happens is it reverts back to questions that one could say are really just about whiteness. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why you can get to the question of why one in five, did you say one in four? One in four. One in four, you know, white folks are recognizing white privilege, right? Uh, If you look at the media, uh, we're all diverse now, right? If you look at Scandal, if you look at, if you watch Empire, you know, like the, it, everything is all good now, right? Let's pursue that because you start the book talking about this concept of diversity mm-hmm. and you talk about whether diversity is for white people mm-hmm. and you break that down as to just the idea that diversity and equality or diversity and equity are two very different things. One may make people feel better, but it doesn't really accomplish anything. I think that diversity used to be a radical word, you know, and, and here, the Bay Area was actually a locus of that in so many ways. Um, if you look at what was bubbling up on the campuses in the late 60s with student protests to establish the Third World College at San Francisco State um, and at UC Berkeley and College of San Mateo, you know, the first African-American studies program was started up at, at Merritt College, the, the same place where the Black Panthers began as well. If you look at what's happening there in terms of this sort of intellectual and cultural renaissance that's happening, you, you get sort of an understanding of what the, the sort of big shifts are that are happening in, in the Bay Area that make it possible for this sort of thing to happen across the country. That particular narrative, I think, has, has kind of been lost. And I think nowadays what we see in the Bay Area is a sense of, of happiness, about, of comfort, of, about our, our level of awareness. And yet, you know, what's really happened on the ground is resegregation. Uh, schools are much more segregated than we've seen before. Uh, there was a peak nationally of desegregation in 1989. And the Bay Area, you know, this area that we, we love so much because we, we live together, you know, so much and we've advanced these ideas and we've produced such amazing culture and art and that kind of thing is actually one of the locuses uh, of desegregation in the country. Uh, with the exception of Berkeley. Resegregation. Resegregation, excuse me, and in Berkeley. And I talk a lot about that in the book. And I think that what happens is, is you get the picture of diversity there, placed as sort of window dressing. And it makes everybody feel really good, uh, whether it's, a, it's an ad for, for hospitals or it's a TV show or that kind of thing. But you don't have equity happening. Right. You have, in fact, all indices showing that we've moved backwards around these kinds of questions. It's um, almost reflective of what we used to call in the 60s and 70s tokenism. Let's yeah. make sure we have a black guy on the, on the page. Let's make sure we have an Asian person on the page. Right. But it doesn't really mean anything. Right. And I, I think that if we look at the numbers, I mean, Oscar's so white, right? Mm-hmm. We're having this debate in 2016. But the reality is, is that the kind of cultural revolution that we thought, you know, hip, some of us thought hip hop would be, didn't result necessarily in, in a changing of the guard at all, even in the culture that presents all of these types of images. So the word diversity is no longer radical in that regard. It's become sort of a cliche. It's become sort of a marketing tool. And, and, and I say this as a person who runs the Institute for Diversity Art in the Arts <laughs> at Stanford University. <laughs> Right. I I, I live with that contradiction (laughs) on a daily basis. It's on my business cards. Um, 
And I, I get it, you know, but I, I think that, that what we want to do is to try to repair rather than have this decoupling of diversity and equity to repair these types of things. Repair. Wow. And re, yeah, repair and repair. Um, I like that. That's cool. Uh, I, anybody have tennis? You write that down. Um, the writing is happening right now. Uh, you know, those two kinds of concepts. Get to some questions from the audience. Can you comment on recent decisions by Princeton and Yale to not rename Woodrow Wilson School and Calhoun College, respectively, after the racism of their namesakes? Mm. This is a really, really interesting kind of thing that's happening right now. I was actually having a really interesting discussion with um, one of the architects of the sort of power shift in South Africa. And he said, you know, back in the day, we were fighting all these issues and it was, it was blood and it was war. And now my daughter is engaged in this Roads Must Fall campaign, which is uh, the campaign to remove Cecil, Ro is it Cecil? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Cecil, Cecil. Cecil, Cecil, okay. I just, I'm remembering the cartoon, Help Cecil Help, Help Cecil, I don't know if this, <laughs> Sea Serpent, whatever. Cecil the Sea Serpent, C Cecil Rhodes. Um, this is how my mind works. I'm kind of like how much of this do you want me to this... leave in in the final letter? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So you know, uh, and I, I told him, well, actually, it's the symbolism is really, really key. It's really important in some ways because it's an entryway for students to be able to come in and and begin to think about questions of racial justice. Mm -hmm. um, and so people are like, ah, oh, they're you know they're fighting over this this roads must fall stuff. They're writing they're fighting over these names in the in these halls. Um, but in the process of of this, there's learning going on, right? There's a situation where students are finding out about the history of their universities. I, I work at Stanford, right? So I feel like every day that I get paid there, it's reparations. Right, because the Chinese are the reason the Chinese train, you know, railroad workers are a lot of the reason that we're able to have the farm here, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so gosh, I don't know if I should have said that. <laughs> <laughs> I just did. It's on, on the radio. Record. It's on the record, I'm not going to cut that. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, like really, like realistically, right? And and so there's that that kind of moment where the light bulb goes on. You know, you're one day fighting in the 1980s about the quote-unquote great books and the canon, right? And the next day you're thinking about what culturally needs to happen in order for us to be able to move towards a society that's oriented towards racial justice. What about the effort of people to take what used to be an effort toward equity and now call it special? For special. example, yeah, it's you want special consideration. You want special rights. For example, the, the there's an argument going on in Texas over both textbooks and studies for black studies or study for Asian studies. And one of the guys on the school board actually said, look, I'm French and I'm Irish. My friends are here and we don't pound the table and demand special classes. Somehow the idea of trying to bring more diversity into the conversation is now saying, well, you're asking for something special. Mm. And, and what I'd say is there's the demographic type of thing. Like you're, you're in Texas, right? Is there a large French-Irish uh, community that's been oppressed in your backyard that uh, has been underrepresented in the textbooks 
and that there's a community that's asking for representation around that kind of thing? And I think the answer would probably be, be no. It's a red herring in a lot of respects. I, I wouldn't mind learning more about the French Irish in Texas, right? <laughs> but I think in order for, for us to be realistic and look at the kind of society that's shaping up in Texas, and by the way, this is the, deb- the debate that we were having here in California in the 80s uh, and the 90s, right? This was the sort of great books uh, type of thing. Right here, there was the conversation about Western civilization and Western cultures, and and that was replaced with the breadth requirement called cultures, ideas, and values. At at Cal, we worked on this thing called the American cultures requirement. I just think it's common sense. If you're living in a community uh, that brings to the table different kinds of histories, um, that are there and present every single day. Why are you arguing about like Spanish language signs or Vietnamese language signs? Um, find out what's going on. One of our audience members got into a pretty touchy area of culture, and that is how do you view rappers who produce songs encapsulating social change and activism, yet also produce songs that degrade women? Mm-hmm. Should they be held to a higher standard? Yeah, I think so. And I think that that discussion has been present within hip hop for forever and ever. You know what I mean? I think that... You know, hip-hop feminism, if anybody knows uh, the, the writer Joan Morgan, uh, she wrote a book called When Chicken Heads Come Home to Roost, um, which is a powerful sort of loving kind of indictment and critique of the misogyny and sexism in hip-hop, right? And so it's not an either-or type of situation. You know, many of us who have been uh, working in hip-hop for years have have uh, pushed very strongly for an opening of a discussion about this type of thing. So yeah, absolutely. We are talking here at Kepler's to Jeff Chang. He co-founded Culture Strike and Color Lines, and he also serves as executive director of the Institute for Diversity in the Arts at Stanford University. Question from our audience, and let's go back to something that, that we started in the very first segment with. How can we get more white people to not be afraid to acknowledge their advantages and their role in supporting an oppressive system so we can all get on the same page and improve things? That's, wow, that's, that's a great question for white folks to answer, I think. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I mean that, I say that as a joke, but I, I kind of mean it as well. I think that what often happens is there's a policing of folks of color that happens, you know, when these, mo- when these movements break out. And it's about, oh, well, we should be all focused on class, right? Uh, instead of all focusing on race or on gender. Well, it's all of the things at the same time. Mm-hmm. And if we understand what the intersections, are, people, you know, we call it over there on campus intersectionality. I think, again, it's just common sense. Like some folks are suffering under all kinds of different types of things, right? And we should be listening to those folks um, really they should be at the forefront of our discussions. They shouldn't be continually pushed to the margins. Um, and so when we have these kinds of discussions, some folks are going to have to travel, I think, a lot further than other folks are going to have to. But it's going to take a lot of uh, laying back and listening. It's going to be doing a lot of work amongst each other. It's going to be for whites to be able to talk to whites about what the impact of racism is um, around the dinner tables around uh, the, the 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 work tables and those kinds of things, um, and I'm for gonna, all of I'm us to kind of push in. I'm going to back into a corner with again very few yeah. seconds to answer here, but I often hear the argument that it is not the job of an oppressed person, you know, a person who has a racial disadvantage, for example, it's not the job of the oppressed person to educate the oppressor. It's the job of the oppressor to get out there and educate themselves, which I understand in principle, but how far are you going to get doing that? Yeah, I you know. 
Uh, I mean, look, I, I'm writing about this stuff. So, you know, I, I'm already here. You know, uh, people should pay me for this lecture here. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, that's, you know, that's sort of the hip hop attitude. Like, if you pay me, right? But I, I just, I, I think that there's a weariness that comes in around these kinds of questions. And I think that there has to be an exchange, but there has to be work that's happening simultaneously to, to do that. You know, I, uh, uh, it's it's very easy to... To, to feel the burden all the time. And I can't imagine what, it's, what it must be like for, for folks who are closer to the front lines than I am. Questions from the audience. Can you comment on Nate Parker, Birth of a Nation, and the sexual assault case? Will you be seeing the film Why or Why Not? Um, so we actually hosted Nate Parker last year. The movie was screened for some of us. I wasn't able to, to make it. Um, I'm not necessarily interested in seeing it now, knowing all that I know. I think that the whole development around this particular question and case has been really interesting. We couldn't have had this discussion, I don't think, just you know five years ago mm-hmm. uh, around this. Um, I think that the the question around sexual assault and race and, and and being able to understand that there are intersections here that we have to be able to look at that 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 we weren't at that level of wokeness, so to speak, right five years ago. And I think, again, if you look at the leadership of the Movement for Black Lives, it's been queer-led. It's been Mm -hmm. women-led. That's what I saw on the ground, too, in Ferguson. And in that regard, these questions have been able to move forward. So I think that it's it's a strong development. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's... Recently, there's been a whole bunch of stuff that's come out around O.J. Simpson. And there was uh, a movie that came out around the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas uh, sort of episode on, on HBO. And this, there's been sort of a revisiting of that particular period. When I was in my 20s, I couldn't have imagined that this type of conversation could have happened um, around the question of sexual assault, particularly if you had a movie that was so strongly about racial justice in the way that Birth of a Nation is. Let's talk about affirmative action. Okay. Uh, you, very good rundown of that in the book. And one of the things that I, I recall when the Bakke case was up, and this was one of the first prominent cases about affirmative action, and this was a man who felt he had been displaced from college because there were quotas in place, and he was the person who deserved the spot and didn't get the spot. I was a kid, and I remember telling mom and dad, well, if he's the best, you know, he should, he's the one who should have gotten in there. And I wonder about how affirmative action was first presented to America and how it might be represented today with what we know and with the experiences that you delineate here. Is there a way it could be sold? Is there a way it could be adjusted? Is there a way that it could realistically be brought back so that opportunities are equal? Well, I think that the question of underrepresentation is still with us, you know, and and all of the numbers bear that out. And I don't know how much data we need to be able to 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 convince people around that kind of a thing. What I think what what I think we need to be able to move beyond is this sense that it's all a zero sum game, right? That there's only a limited amount of opportunity uh, available, and that we're all kind of fighting for that piece of the pie. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the thing that I told uh, that Chinese-American woman who I got into, a, you know, sort of this verbal argument about around affirmative action was, you know, the kind of society that I want to live in is not one in which San Francisco becomes uh, uh, a place where all of the resources are disproportionately given to Asian-Americans, mm-hmm. right? 
I actually don't want to live in that kind of society. I want to live in a society where there's opportunity for everybody. And so if we get away from this focus on the so-called elite high schools, the so-called elite universities, and start thinking about what opportunity really looks like for everybody, right? That's the kind of intersectionality that I think that we need to be building towards. Um, and it requires, again, some folks to travel a lot further than others. It requires a huge leap for some people to be able to take. But to be able to see that all of our destinies are bound together, right, is, I think, the, the bottom line here, that we're all connected, that we're all going to have a safer society, that we're all going to have a more vital society, that we're all going to be more healthy, uh, that we're all going to have better lives if we're creating a society that's focused on equity um, and not on uh, division and, and that kind of thing. There's a way in which social media allows us to be able to pinpoint and spot and shame folks who are being blatantly racist. And I think the much more difficult type of thing is what is the conversation that comes after that? One of the things that happens is, is like, okay, Mel Gibson says something crazy or Kramer says something crazy. And then we all kind of do this dog pile and then they're gone. Like they're just gone. We've like wiped them from the stage, right? It's like, oh, you're racist. You're racist. Ha ha. You're racist. Ha ha. You're racist. And they're gone. And the conversation that needs to happen, like, well, what happened here? And why, why are these attitudes still prevalent? And what does this actually mean? And what are the implications for that? That never happens because there's enough pleasure, there's enough likes that are generated by the fact that, that we were able to decry this as, mm -hmm. as horrible. We need to be able to have those conversations in a way that kind of turns down the volume. Jeff Chang, his website is jeffchang.net. You can find the entire interview one hour long at indeepradio.com. Thank you for tuning in. Be safe out there, okay, for the holiday because every nut is out on the road along with saner, reasonably terrified drivers. I'm in for one more show, then Brad and Desi come on back. Until then, good luck, world. We'll